One way to think about data is that it's like rain and it's pouring outside. Imagine C-suite executives running around in a parking lot with huge buckets trying to capture as much as they can. Afterward, they return to the office, analyze the data, and then decide what to do based upon their discoveries. But in this example, it's not about how many buckets you come back with. It's what's in the buckets that matters the most. Data is interpreted based upon a person's values. In fact, certain types of data are acquired or discarded because of someone's core principles. They're guiding light as to how they see the world and their role in it. Entire companies make decisions about how to use data based upon their mission. It all comes down to values, whether at the personal level or at the overall company level. In business, data is leaned on because it's measurable. Data is useful, no doubt. It can guide decisions. But really, the heart of decision-making is about a leader's values. The underlying question is, what do you believe in? On this episode of IT Visionaries, guest host Michael Revo, director, Salesforce Live, virtual events, content, and platform at Salesforce, is joined by Kimberly Page, EVP and CMO of BET, and Dan Tarunian, VP of Employee Technology and Experiences at PayPal. They discuss how their intuition and values drive how they use data and help make decisions for their respective companies. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. All right, welcome Kimberly and welcome Dan. Kimberly, I wanted to start with you. Can you tell me about your role at BT? You know, it's such a dynamic time to be in the media space and transitioning into existing brand is a challenge. Tell me about your role and what are your biggest challenges right now? Absolutely. Uh, well, one, thank you for having me. Super excited about the conversation. So I am currently the EVP and Chief Marketing Officer uh, for BET. And that is across all of our platforms, which includes our linear side of the business, our recently launched streaming platform, our digital and social, as well as our uh, live events, uh, just knowing the importance of experiential, obviously, pre-pandemic. And so, yeah, super excited. I think, you know, uh, what we're doing by way of the expansion of the various business units within up under the BT umbrella. We, we don't consider ourselves just a network anymore, mm-hmm. but really uh, an overall content and experiential kind of company. And so uh, super excited about what that means by way of cross promotion and just a host of things uh, by way of our conversation today on data. Yeah. In terms of excitement, I think, you know, as you mentioned, <laughs> there's never a dull day uh, as it relates <laughs> to, um, media and entertainment. And so the last September will be two years for me in the role. Um, but I will tell you just all of the things that, you know, we as, as a, you know, a company and as, and as a world are dealing with, you know, we, we feel it real time. And so mm-hmm. constantly trying to, you know, be uh, a voice of information, uh, a place where people can go to, you know, participate in conversations, um, educate, you know, obviously is a big, big, portion of, of our pillar. And so, as you can imagine, the last 15 months, whether it was the pandemic to the social unrest and our constant uh, mission and quest to uh, make this world a much fairer and just world, um, that there was just never a dull moment. So um, I will say that it's been, it's been quite a ride. And, you know, you mentioned all the different platforms now that are part of, of BET and that you're really having to 
make some big pivots and transitions there. How are you approaching the decisions of where to invest, what to do, what not to do? Data is part of that, obviously, but how are you looking at that as, as there's so much change happening right now? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think part of kind of my approach, even within the wheelhouse of, of marketing has always been about, you know, obviously engagement and really building a brand that matters and is um, sustainable and, and profitable and, and generates equity. But also, you know, there's a strong revenue growth management lens to what we do every day. And so trying to figure out how marketing can be an unlock to revenue growth it has always been part of my orientation as, as even, you know, as a traditional marketer in some ways. So, you know, the realities of the data uh, would suggest that you've got to be in a very dynamic, you know, place as you think about, you know, to me, strategy is, is at its basic level is a decision by way of where you want to spend your time and, and resources, right? And so data shows that, you know, the linear side of the house, which is, you know, still a very big portion of our business, but, you know, we call it cutting cords. People are cutting, you know, their cable, you know, month over month. And so as you start to think about, well, what does the bridge to the future look like? Um, it's clear where, you know, consumers are going and where they are on their journey, whether it's streaming, whether it's obviously much more, you know, kind of social digital platforms. And so, you know, the writing's on the wall. And I think it's just really being smart about, you know, where you put the emphasis and when, uh, but also knowing that, you know, as linear has its own unique challenges, there's still something really, really powerful about people, you know, sitting around, you know, TV. And, and we just saw that with the BET Awards that just that we just delivered last weekend. But data is very, very important across all of the aspects of how our decisions are done. So I would say there's a constant and, and dynamic, you know, in addition to the short, short term and long range planning uh, processes that we follow you know, you have to be dynamic. You have to use data to make those pivots um, because, you know, those are going to, you have to be able to, to, to really think about where you're going to get the highest leverage. You know, we know resources are, are, are finite. Mm -hmm. And so I am constantly looking at data to, to make decisions, uh, but we're excited about the growth. Um, 2020 was a record year performance for BET and, you know, which is amazing in such a dynamic and competitive marketplace, especially as it relates to the audience that we overserve. So, but I think that was really driven by a lot of, you know, real strategy, selective choices by way, by way of where we want to spend, you know, kind of our time. And so it, it's a never ending conversation in terms of using data to make some of those um, strategic choices. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to hear about some of those conversations when you talk about marketing as an, as an unlock. Yep. What are those conversations like when you're the, the CMO and you're the marketer at the table? What data are you bringing in? What, how are you telling that story of what the, the opportunity is? And how are those decisions being made around where to go as a company? Absolutely. So I'll give you a real-time example. And that is, as we're thinking about some of those, you know, declining households. And while, you know, BET remains in uh, roughly 72 million households, we know that that number is declining, right? And so, you know, one of the things that we do, and I'm, I'm you know, we're fortunate that we have one of the best and the brightest in the game in terms of the president or, of our sales organization, but really using data because it can't, it's, it's no longer just about pure ratings anymore because those ratings, the pie is getting smaller, right? And so, what each of the, the linear uh, networks, whether it's us, whether it's so many others in the game, you're really trying to, you know, either maintain or in my mind, you're always trying to, you know, get above, above and beyond your fair share. Uh, but what becomes really, really important in some of those conversations are the power of the brand, right? And so based on some recent research around the health of BET as a brand, 
the trust and the credibility that we have with this highly coveted, you know, kind of black audience or as, as well as the lovers of black culture. I made a choice and really sat down with the president and, and sales and said, you know, as you guys are having these conversations, especially by way of, you know, these big, big, big kind of sponsorship opportunities. Yes, the specific content titles and who we're reaching every day, night overnight is important. But the context of where their content shows up is equally important. And so there's a whole story and narrative around the power of BET as a brand, the credibility, as I mentioned, the trust, as many other networks are entering into, into the space, there were some real unique advantage points that we had by way of, you know, again, more recent study that we did on the health of, of our brand that really changed our entire upfront presentation. Uh, so going out into the marketplace, um, literally landed the plane on two wheels because I had just gotten the data and I said, you know what? <laughs> We've got to make an entire kind of pivot to the narrative on this. And uh, by far, it was one of our most successful upfronts. And I do believe it was really about using that data to tell a different story or at minimum increase kind of the balance by way of, of, of the power of the brand. And, and that was one of my, my reasons, quite honestly, for joining the organization. I have been a long-term client of, 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 of Viacom CBS's and would often kind of say, yes, you guys are are, you know, marketing content, but where, where are you marketing the brand of BET and, the, and, and all that it has stood for over its, you know, 41 plus year history. And so that's just a, a really, really recent example of just using the data to inform strategy, to build a much more compelling and, and exciting narrative that we were then able to take out to the marketplace and, and monetize. Yeah, that's great. Okay, Dan, over to you. Tell me about your role at PayPal. What, what do you do there? Oh, thank you, Michael, and thank you for having us here today for this great talk. I lead an organization that we refer to as Employee Technologies and Experiences. It is essentially all of the internally consumed technology that we expose to our employees to operate our company on a day-to-day -day basis. So whether it be our corporate platforms, our collaboration tools, and then ultimately the endpoint devices that we put in the hands of our employees as well. Okay, so tell me about how you are using data in that process, what are those the most important things that that need to come out of out of the work you're doing for your for your internal clients? Yeah, let, let me address that, Michael, twofold. Let me give you kind of business context that when we separated from eBay, I believe we were roughly about 180 million consumers on the platform. We now surpassed 400 million. No different than Kimberly's story. Obviously, last year was a, a record year for us, all things considered as the industry moved more to digital payments, sometimes ambient, ambient payments. So we've seen incredible adoption of the platform. And we've also telegraphed to the street that by 2025, we expect to have 750 million active consumers on the platform. So when you start to think about the next five years at PayPal, and how do we prepare ourselves for that growth and position our workforce to scale to enable that, that growth? Clearly, we're not going to grow headcount linearly. So part of implied in, in the role of my, my team and I is how do we deliver back to PayPal a healthy workforce that is innovative, has the appropriate culture, is collaborative, and can help the company scale? And I think maybe to the essence of your question, at their core, employees really want to do four things. They want to perform their role. They want to grow in their careers. They want to know what's happening in their company, in their organization, their location. 
and they want to be able to celebrate, celebrate and be part of a team and our community. So by taking an employee 360 view to our data, that allows us to deliver simple and tailored delightful experiences at each of those steps in the employee journey. And I think that's kind of the crux of how we see data playing a role in our employees ecosystem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, give me an example of how you are empowering employees. I mean, is there a core group that you serve or is it across many different roles in the company? It's around many different roles in the company. I think what we've looked for initially in this kind of first chapter or this first journey of what is common across our employees? What are co- the common activities of soliciting feedback, recognizing other employees, mm-hmm. approving things, you know, b- before pan- the pandemic, making travel arrangements, being able to take leave, things of that nature that were somewhat complex workflows that we've said, look, let's just put that at, and make that be a one-touch seamless uh, event for the employee so that the employee is really focusing on the outcome they want to drive, not on the underlying technology or the mechanics to be able to drive that outcome. And Kimberly, I'm curious from your perspective, when you you mentioned using data to drive decisions, where are you getting that data? Is that coming from a partner group inside the organization? How how are you collecting that? And how does that relate maybe to to Dan's experience in terms of providing that service inside of a, a big company? Uh, first, Dan, I love your four points. Can you remind me what the fourth point was? <laughs> I just, I, I just really love that in terms of what employees are looking for. They, they want to celebrate, and they also want to be part of a team and a community. Yep, love that. Yeah, so our data is is fairly, um, fairly vast, as as you can imagine. You know, it's a whole infrastructure around, you know, uh, pre around insights that we want to gather in terms of what's important to to our consumers you know, their need states, what shows they like, you know, all of that to obviously a lot of the performance and evaluation of of our success. So whether it's all of the the Nielsen, you know, information to, you know, um, what I believe is, you know, really kind of the future by way of content and, uh, you know, kind of digital marketing is the entire performance marketing, um, all of the below the line data that we get by way of really understanding, um, you know, we're delivering our message, you know, did that actually convert, drive behavior? Is there a one-to-one attribution? And so it's fairly, you know, vast, I would say, in terms of how we use data across the board, right? Obviously, every day we're getting ratings, we're getting information, we're getting data around, you know, when consumers are coming into a show, how long are they staying in the show? At exactly what point did they leave the show? And so all of those give us insights. Um, that allow us to get better because at the end of the day, it's all about kind of retention. And as I mentioned, kind of that earlier, in terms of the the expanding kind of reach by way of our variety of platforms, we're really kind of, you know, uh, really excited about, you know, the streaming side because that's a whole different unlock by way of data, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And really being able to use that subscription data to then drive kind of information and, and you know, strategic dis- decision ac- across the entire house. So I would say, you know, we, we work with a host of partners, but uh, I really, really am excited because I do think that we're getting incredibly smart about a lot of that below the funnel uh, data um, to help us even become smarter as it relates to a lot of that top of the funnel kind of decisions. And so, you know, clearly we're ex- we are a part of the Viacom CBS uh, portfolio, which includes, you know, MCV, VH1, Comedy Central, Paramount Studios, Showtime, yada, yada, yada. And so 
imagine now the unlock when we can have access to all of that data mm-hmm. by way of you know consumer viewership and and attendance at various you know events, um, award shows, et cetera. And so I'm excited because I think now the systems are are going to be connected. And, um, you know, while I often tell the team, you know, we may not outspend our competition, but we can definitely outsmart them. And so I'm constantly looking for that nugget of data that can help us just be more, you know, impactful and and efficient, you know, and effective with some of our um, choices that we're making. You know, and one of the things coming into this conversation that I thought was interesting for, for all of us to talk about is the balance between intuition and sort of instinct versus data, which, you know, everybody talks about data-driven decisions and yes, data can inform and be helpful, but ultimately there's experience and there's instinct and there's intuition, there's the human factors, which are so important. For either one of you, uh, you know, Dan, maybe if you want to start, how do you look at that? How have you seen that played out in your group and other places in your professional life around the difference between and, and the balance between being data-driven and using your intuition? You know, I, I don't think there's necessarily a, a silver bullet, I will confess. And I'm uh, very curious to hear maybe some advice or perspective that Kimberly has, but I've always taken the adage, there's no, there's, there's no substitute for common sense. Mm-hmm. I think when you, when you know something to be relatively common and your instincts uh, support that and you can find other subjective measures to support that, I always feel like you should act on that. I'd rather act and learn from the action and then course correct and go, go forward. I, I don't think you're always going to be in a position to have clear data that gives you insights as to how employees are thinking or, or behaving. Obviously, you would love to have that data and the more insights, the better. But I think when things are obvious, it's best just to act. Absolutely agree with Dan. I think, you know, as, as we know, marketing is the art and the science. And I think, you know, you, you have to be able to balance those in all situations, right? You know, the value of being, you know, in this, in this you know, kind of industry and, and um, space for quite some time is that, you know, you just start to build this kind of innate sensibility and understanding. And I think that, yes, I've used data and definitely understood that starting my career at, at Procter & Gamble. Um, but I will tell you the big swings sometimes are just really that gut, that instinct around what consumers are are looking for, with, even without them even knowing half the time what they're looking for, right? By way of, you know, articulating it in a way that is clear and, and concise. And so a lot of, I think, what I do is as much as we want to think things are incredibly com- complex at times, I often say, you know, what would I want as a consumer, you know, if someone were trying to invite me to participate in their brand, what would, what would, you know, what would excite me, right? And, and I think uh, when people talk about bringing, you know, your entire selves to work, I think that's really, really important because oftentimes you start to really remove yourself from the day-to-day realities of the everyday person. And so in my mind, you know, I think, you know, data is, it informs, it can give you a little bit of a nuance on, on a decision that you want to make. But it's ultimately, I think, as I, as I have appreciated some of the people in the industry, as I was kind of coming up in the industry, there was just this, this instinct and gut and love Dan's point. You know, it's, it's definitely a win or learn situation. If you, if you can fail fast and get up and pivot and, and understand why that mistake was made, 
you know, you're just going to be stronger and better kind of the next time around. Yeah. I was thinking about it where it's sort of those big swings, like you're talking about that come from the human spark, you know, our, our intuition, but then the data comes in to start to validate, to start to course correct, Mm -hmm. to look at it that way. Do you find that, that you use the the data in that way? Yeah. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I, I am always a a person of, you know, I'll take what I have at the moment, but at the, at the same time as leaders, there's a, there's a degree of thought leadership and conviction about what you believe is real and right for the business. Mm -hmm. I don't do a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. I think there's a big, a big gap by way of a lot of our systems because it is very much so rear view perspective. And I'm really more uh, inclined to think about what's new and next and how do we start to really build systems that allow us to look around corners a bit more versus the rear view analysis. You know, my, my team might laugh at that because I do, we do do a lot of, you know, post-program analyses, but I do think that it's, it's a real quick, okay, got it, got it, got it. This worked, this didn't. Okay. Now let's, let's kind of, you know, pivot and think about next time. And, and I would just say that there is a, you know, to your point, a lot of, oh, big data and data, data, data. And it's like, mm, how do you really use it in, in the best way? And I think as it relates to, you know, decisions around consumers, as soon as you think you know it, they, they move on. <laughs> so I think you can't, you can't be so rooted in that. And I tell my team, if you're waiting on data, you know, and, and, and definitely back in the day for a focus group to tell you what to do, you're probably in the wrong space, right? I love this idea of systems to look around corners. So tell me more about that. Are there systems that do that? <laughs> and if so, I want to I want to know more about that. It's funny. I mean, I think, you know, if you get up under and there are a couple of partners that I've worked with over the years who just have blown me away <laughs> in terms of their ability to really project trends and 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 definitely a lot of the um, you know, analytics and, you know, a host of whether it's Google EQ or all of those IQ, all of those things, because I think often people are, will post who they are, but what they search will tell you what's important to them. And being able to look at some of those kind of predictive analytics, I think are very, very important. And so I think it's a combination of those, but for me, it's really, um, not necessarily understanding the trends as as it were as as they are, but more the the why behind the what. Because I think if you can unpack why that trend is a trend, you can easily more figure out what's going to be the next wave or what's going to be the next trend. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there is this kind of momentum as it relates to where consumers are going and things like that. And so if you can understand where it starts, you know, I think you know, as an example, you know, back in the day when I was in the beverage category, we would often look at ingredients. We would talk to shelves. We would talk to mixologists because they were introducing different ingredients that potentially, you know, your average everyday consumer had not heard of or seen. And it would ultimately make its way down to the basic everyday to drink, you know, kind of beverage space. And so I think you have to be intentional around where those trends start and really then kind of really better understand them the why of them, um, such that you're not just trying to be on trend, but, but that you understand why that trend became a trend, such that when you do, if you, if you are following it, whether you are first in the game or a fast follower, you can then do it at a different level by way of impact, because you're tapping into something much deeper than the surface level of, okay, I want to be on trend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Dan, I imagine over the years, this has changed so much for some of the, you know, the, the internal functions around empowering employees with technology, looking at trends, looking at data, looking at what 
people want, how they need to get their jobs done. What are some of the biggest kind of changes or even misconceptions that you heard about the process that, that you guys do to figure out how to, how to service your employees the best you can? I think at times you can be over-reliant on surveys. I think surveys, by the way, are very, very important. But when we put in context what the pandemic has taught us about our workforce, what we probably thought in March 2020 was recalibrated by midsummer 2020 and then was recalibrated again as we exited 2020 and entered 2021. So I think you have to leave yourself space to be able to recalibrate and understand how working norms are changing, especially in such a significant black swan event like COVID. I think to Kimberly's earlier point, there's things that you know that are just intuitive. There's things that the data will tell you, uh, but there's also space you need to leave yourself to adjust because these working norms in this new hybrid workings construct that we all find ourselves in, those working norms are being established and developed as, as we go. So I think it's important to give yourself that, that latitude. But at the end of the day, people do want to connect. And how do you enable that in this kind of virtual, physical world? How do you take steps to blur the lines between what is physical and virtual? And how do you also recognize that the needs of the employees have changed now that they are, at least for us, primarily virtual and the lines between their family life, their home life, and their work life have become very blurry. So I think it's on us as to how do we give back to our employees some level of flexibility so they can navigate those, those worlds in a way that is productive for them. And how it is for one employee may be different for another employee, given their uh, situation, their location, as well as their job function. You know, Dan, as you're talking about this, I can see you're so in the heart of everything that so many companies are dealing with right now. How are you and your team creating that space to do the learning, to understand how to move so quickly as people's needs are changing? I think the emphasis is on us to remove as much of the complexity from how we operate from as a company. We have a saying that we sometimes reuse over and over again, that we want our employees to be artists and not mechanics, so that their focus is on what they want to do, as opposed to the underlying technology or even the underlying business processes that they're, they're trying to navigate. That if we simplify those and give that employee time back, that ultimately they are going to focus on value creation. And if they're focused on value creation, our customers will start to feel that. They'll feel that by virtue of the products that we're offering, They'll feel that in context of the clarity of our marketing campaigns. They'll feel that in uh, how we come across from a customer service perspective. So I think that to us is kind of the essence of what a true customer champion company is, is let's take the complexity out and give the employee as much flexibility as we reasonably can so they can focus on doing their jobs and focus on value creation. Mm -hmm. I love that. So are you and your team meeting cross-functionally, meeting with you know, just within your team and cross-functionally to evaluate this. And I'm, I'm really curious about the nuts and bolts process of how you guys make decisions about the technology you're going to deploy, what changes you need to make, and how you can be in lockstep with the business. I think it's some of the parts. You start to look at the company from a lens of what is our makeup? And, you know, for PayPal, 
about half our company, maybe more than 10,000 employees are in some form of a support or teammate role, a customer service agent, a collections agent, or they're out there on the front lines trying to prevent fraud and, and other cyber crimes. So that, that contingent of our workforce operates very similarly, even though they're organized in different areas of the company. So you have to understand how they work, what their challenges are, and what would be those solutions and capabilities that you could deliver to them, which may be completely somewhat different than about a quarter of our company is developers, engineers, they're working on new products. So I think it's understanding your various personas or internal constituents, understanding their business problems, and ultimately how does technology and data come forward to be able to solve those business problems. And as you do that, not only are you delivering on the value proposition that I spoke to, but you're starting to now lay the foundation for the next five years. And how are you getting those inputs? How do you create that cross-functional sort of breaking silos communication from those different groups? You have to be present. You have to be present with your customer. You have to walk in their shoes. You have to understand from them what their challenges are and how those challenges translate into business problems and how those business problems then translate into either missed opportunities or not being able to exploit different uh, trends that we're seeing in, in, in the business. So I think we try to stay as close and as open-eared, as open-eyed uh, with our business partners as possible. And ultimately, and I know we're, apologies that we're, maybe we're going slight t- tangential, the outcomes that my business partners drive should be my outcomes. My team and I should not be measured by anything else than how our business partners are measured. And is that the measurement? Do you guys look at that? We do. I think it's a, it's an evolving, maturing uh, item for us. But whether I'm working with our CMO or our chief sales officer, you know, for those two executives, I want their business outcomes that they're committing to the board and to our executive leadership team. Those should be the outcomes that I'm helping them drive. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, then, you know, what's the point? Then you're just a, you're a sustainer or a maintainer. And I think that we aspire to help transform these functions. So by default, we should have skin in the game as far as their business outcomes are concerned. And what does that look like from your side, Kimberly? I, I know that you must rely on different parts of the organization to provide data and different services. How does that look in terms of the cross-functional communication in, in your day-to-day? Yeah, I think Dan is spot on. I mean, in, in terms of, I think, you know, going back to kind of some of his principles around how you build a highly engaged and empowered organization is that there's clarity on what the win looks like. And there's a, there's a shared investment across that. And so we do have, you know, if I were to say, you know, out of five goals, you know, three, if not four are, you know, common goals that everyone is kind of shooting and aiming for. And so I think that in and of itself really does kind of try to break down some of those, you know, silos and, and, you know, I think we're all in the business of trying to figure out how, you know, the one plus one equals three, right? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, in those organizations where you don't have shared, you know, wins and shared losses, you do, you know, inherently start to create, you know, those silos. And so there's a lot of, you know, our entire senior leadership team, um, just a high degree of collaboration, uh, again, by way of not only what I mentioned, but I think, you know, we, we're so driven by a bigger calling, quite honestly, 
And we believe that, you know, the purpose of what we do is much more important than any one thing that we will ever do. But it's, it's, the, sum, it's the sum of all of those actions over the course of a period of time that it is, you know, yes, compelling content, but ultimately it's about changing outcomes for our community. And either you buy into that or you don't. And I think that our, you know, significant portion of our employees have bought into that. They could incredibly smart could be anywhere they want, want to be. And so um, I think just that shared mission and that shared responsibility and obligation we feel for the community we serve really does allow a degree of, you know, uh, collaboration and I think sharing of information. And those things are, are all kind of, you know, critical and foundational to, you know, driving transformative growth. You know, definitely there, there are going to be times <laughs> when, when information is not shared, but I think our leadership team has been incredibly intentional about, you know, oftentimes we even have, you know, dotted line reporting structure, which, you know, in a number of prior um, roles, that was like the worst thing ever. Um, but I think if you can figure it out, there's value in being able to, to do those things. But, you know, for, for me and a, a big principle of my thinking is, you know, great brands start within and whatever you're projecting externally, if it's not happening internally, then forget about it. It's not going to be authentic and it's not going to stick or land with impact. And so I'm totally um, aligned with what Dan has shared there. Yeah. I mean, I think the core values and the principles that everybody can agree to builds that, that trust that provides the collaboration. But then there's the second step of, well, can you actually get to the data? Can you see it? <laughs> Just the, you know, the logistical process. I think we've all been there when it's hard to access and, and utilize that data. Dan, maybe this is a question for you too, in terms of, of tools or what, what have you seen that's, that's empowered everybody to be able to participate and get a view in, in these large organizations? I think like every other large corporation, you know, we're still uh, working through some of those challenges. So I wouldn't want this to be perceived as we've got it all figured out. But I, I will say that in context of your employee, you need to understand what is the data that is most important? What do you want to do with that data? And ultimately, how do you put the reporting and the analytics in the hands uh, and make it more, more democratized? You know, trying to create these kind of very siloed reporting functions or macro reporting functions, although it can get you out of the gate, I feel then becomes an impetus to, to scaling. I'm a firm believer, put the data as close to the hand, into the hands of where the decisions are being made and where decisions should be made and allow those teams or those analysts uh, to be able to draw on that data and understand how their organization, their function whatever it may be, is, is performing. And uh, I think we've seen a lot of promise uh, with some of the tools that are on the markets in, in, in context of like workplace analytics and things of that nature that give us great insight as to how employees are spending their time. Are they getting the appropriate check-ins with their managers? Are they getting appropriate focus and learning, learning time? Are they working outside of their normal band and then take, kind of taking an impact to work-life balance? So, I think there's a lot of tools that, that are out there that if you put them in the hands of the various organizations and don't hold them too tight centrally, uh, can really start to unlock uh, different teams' behaviors, different employees' behaviors. Uh-huh. And you know, we talked about you know, the power of predictive analytics a little bit earlier. What's some exciting stuff that you're excited about in the future of, of employee experience? 
You know, I think there's so much to be done in helping guide the employee through the course of their career. And one of the North Stars that we talk about internally is as employees are growing in their career, rather than them having to search for curriculum or counsel advice, how do you start to recognize where that employee is in their journey and start to push to them the various tools that they need to take on that stretch assignment? to be ready for that to, for that promotion, things of that nature. I, I kind of call it just-in-time and uh, individual-based training and development, I think can be very exciting in enhancing the employee experience and also becoming kind of a lightning rod to be able to attract talent into the company because they'll see how committed you are to being able to grow uh, people's careers and how proactive I think technology can be over time in in guiding that employee through the course of their journey. Oh, I'd love that. And taking that out of the hands so many times of an individual manager or, you know, and and making that more systematized sounds interesting. Are you guys experimenting with that at all right now? We are starting to scratch the surface on some of that, but still more to be done. Fantastic. Kim, what's exciting to you right now on the horizon? Oh, wow. So, so much is exciting. I think um, one of the, the more recent things as we've entered into these new business verticals is, you know, just this notion of the consumer journey by way of how content is consumed. And I think there were a lot of assumptions around, I'm either a streaming viewer or I'm a linear viewer, or I, I you know, watch everything on this platform versus that platform. And I think that there were, you know, um, there aren't these hard lines as a lot of assumptions. And so just this notion of that cross-platform viewing behavior, that multi-use you know, uh, multi kind of viewing various content, variety of content, even at one time, I think that has been a bit of a game changer for us in terms of having access to our own linear and digital and streaming data. It allows us to understand the true depth of how our consumers are viewing content, what they're viewing, right? And it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of assumptions, right? Especially as you think about Black consumers, oh, they only want to watch this. Well, the reality is that they watch, we watch everything, right? And, and we're engaging in every genre across all types, across the spectrum. And so I think this has allowed us to, to be very thoughtful in what we create um, for, for various platforms and when. Um, so whether that's, you know, family-friendly content for our linear or mature dramas or streaming, the data is allowing us to unlock a portfolio map, if you will, in terms of our content. So I would say that's one of the things I'm excited about, um, just in terms of how do you build that bridge and keep that viewer within your ecosystem longer? Again, that's part of the, the game. You know, I think, you know, for me, the, the bigger piece is that, you know, on the heels of, of what's happening in the world, you know, consumers are very clear about you know, what is required of brands that they choose to participate in and covet versus those that they don't. And so purpose becomes very, very important. And I believe that our deep roots in terms of our commitment of serving and over-serving our audience has allowed us to have a different conversation that feels much more authentic and organic as everyone's kind of jumping on, on the bandwagon of chasing Black, as I say. So it's like, you know, whether you sell wine or widgets, everyone wants to sell them to Black consumers right now. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a there there, right? In the sense of, yes, great, you, you now recognize this highly coveted consumer. But at the same time, you know, I think that there is a, there's a demand around really being intentional um, and really leaving this consumer and this community better than you found it. And I think, you know, I, I've often said, you know, 
you know, we were looking at a map about just the absolute numbers of pure black content that has entered the marketplace over the last five years. I think it's absolutely great, you know, it, because it, it, it's starting to really recognize kind of the, the diversity of who we are and, and the power of some of these stories, you know, and narratives, which I think is great. But you can't just take, right? You, like I say, you can't, you can't just have our rhythm and not our blues, right? And so you have to be able to, to, to contribute in a way. And I think what is really exciting for me as I think about all of the conversations that are happening is that there seems to be a, a bit more of an authentic commitment as it relates to whether it's serving our, our audience or, or other audiences that were, you know, felt, you know, previously that they were not as represented or served in a way. And so I'm excited because I think that that's just going to completely unlock just so much amazing stories. I think with any type of, you know, um, you know, on this end, you know, chaos drives creativity, uh, but it also drives clarity. And I think that there is a power of what we're going to see. You often talk about kind of the renaissance and just the artistic expression that comes out of moments like this. And so I can't wait to see, you know, I'm thinking and and excited about all the content that we're going to see over the next two to three years that was going to be inspired, whether it's the pandemic, you know, the economic kind of pandemic, the social injustice pandemic, but also just the the reckoning of the power of humanity and what happens when when we are when we really recognize that at the end of the day, we're all humans and and the beauty of what those stories are going to be. So I'm, I'm really excited about the content that we're going to see in the next couple of years. That's fantastic. And you know, in the time of all this, all this change that you're talking about, and then change in the business too. I, I'm curious what you and your team have had to do to start to learn to interpret all this new data, right? Because you've got new streaming data, you've got social data, you've got all this stuff that's exploded. Mm-hmm. And you have the, I imagine, you know, people who haven't, you know, been there from the beginning and everybody's learning this as we go. Right. right. <laughs> what have you had to do as a team? to keep up with it and figure out how to interpret and, and use it to make decisions. You know, as I mentioned, it's, it's really using it to, to get a, a view on what consumers are looking for. We've done a whole remapping around audience segmentation, knowing that there's no group ever that's a monolith. And so who are we really serving? Where are the gaps? Um, and how do we think about pivoting our, our kind of programming and, and content development process to ensure that we're doing that? You know, as I mentioned, you know, the linear side of the business is challenged. I mean, you can, it's very easy to, to look at the data to see what are those high growth genres that are doing incredibly well. And, and it's a lot of unscripted content. BT has, you know, historically not been in the unscripted place, especially as we think about our consumers, um, because a lot of that content, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, it, it really starts to, you know, fuel stereotypes and values and perceptions and beliefs. And so we've opted not to be in that, but the reality is that's where all the growth is. And so the uh, entire group of thinking around, if we were to go into unscripted, how do you do it in a way that's, you know, obviously entertaining, but leave something a little bit better, right? Um, and so that's just an example of, of, of the data as well as, you know, a lot of the data around, there's a whole retro uh, a lot of the 80s content and 90s content is really, really, really highly coveted. And so really looking at well, what is that kind of library and, and programming strategy look like? And so we're, we're just making a host of using data to, um, to really kind of inform where we go next. 
I would say one of the the other platforms that I'm most excited about is that um, we, uh, on the heels of the George Floyd murder, uh, launched a, a platform called Content for Change. And it was really driven by an insight, you know, that the media, and, and obviously we, we are a big, <laughs> one of the largest media companies at Viacom CBS, um, that the media has played a critical role in, in perpetuating, you know, stereotypes and values and perceptions and beliefs by way of the stories that they've chosen to tell and not tell or the images that, you know, the media as a whole has, has chosen to show and not show. And so this content for change platform started, you know, with BET, but now is across the entire Viacom CBS footprint. And it's a real simple objective. And that is really holding ourselves even to a higher standard, even more so than we have to a higher standard of engaging um, storytellers, engaging content that shows the fullness and and the varied experiences, um, specifically of, of the Black experience. And so you know, it's great for BET to do it, but it's amazing to see Viacom CBS do that, right? And so again, it's a lot of the data. We started a, an eight-month study with um, Stanford uh, by way of really trying to map imagery and the power of imagery once you see it, right? Because it's one thing to say, I'm going to show a variety of different stories, right? But to really get up under the data such that, you know, two years from now, three years from now, we can look back and say, it wasn't just about a variety of content, but it was content delivered in this way at this level of frequency. And so that data is going to be very, very important uh, because I do believe that it's going to, to help us, you know, um, really do something that matters and start to get a, a programming strategy. And then ultimately not, you know, keep that information close to the vest, but have a broad industry kind of conversation around that um, as a way to kind of fuel broader change. That's great. I love that. I've got a question here uh, for both of you, kind of to each other. Dan, what's one thing that you'd like to know from Kimberly about using data to build relationships with BET's audience? I think what I would like to better understand, uh, Kimberly, and just in general, I think it's just more my lack of awareness of how to use personalization Mm. to help drive not just how we think about our products, But how do you link the product delivery to our marketing campaigns Mm. and then start to almost reverse engineer that ecosystem of marketing drives sales, sales drives customer service, customer service feedback feeds product, product makes the enhancements, and then you start to close that loop. I I feel like within PayPal, we know we need to do that. We're just starting to scratch the surface in context of personalization you know, thinking global, globally, but acting locally and, you know, would love any thoughts or uh, advice you may have for us. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing question. Um, you know, I would say one of the things by way of personalization is, you know, that's the power of some of the data, right? So what we will know, you know, um, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm certain, you know, you, you are aware in that once we know kind of that viewing behavior and patterns of viewing behavior, we can kind of then send you, you know, messages and, and tee up different content that if you watch this, you know, you know, maybe you would want to watch that. I think one of the interesting things that we started with our plus platform is that, you know, if you watch this, maybe you want to read this book because, you know, prior to selling our publishing arm about two months ago, we had a, um, you know, uh, Simon and Schuster was a part of ViacomCBS. And so we were using data to kind of really tee up offerings. 
in the sense of if you like, you know, this and, and really leveraging the, the, the footprint. And as you can imagine, um, the consumer products division at the company is a high growth area for us. I mean, you think about all of the products that are sold with Nickelodeon or all the products that are sold with MTV. I've just recently in partnership with with that uh, function, um, company-wide function, stood up consumer products with um, with BET and a lot of our kind of intellectual property, um, you know, um, platforms from, you know, many years ago that still have a lot of equity in the marketplace. So there's something really unique about, you know, Dan, I would say, as you think about that viewing behavior and then being able to kind of drive transaction in a, in a very kind of close, um, you know, kind of close proximity could be really powerful in terms of really starting to close that gap. And, and we know that, you know, there's a, there's a high degree of consumption and, and purchase uh, with our audience. But how do you think about that? And one of the things that we're doing is really starting to curate, you know, a number of, you know, Black-owned businesses and, and, you know, our superpower is, you know, the access and the reach that we have. And so, but really starting to drive understanding that culture is so connected to commerce. How do we take more of a, a direct play in terms of advancing that? And I think that could be really a really interesting conversation with PayPal. No, thank you, Kimberly. Much appreciated. Great. And so, Kimberly, what's the one thing you'd like to know from Dan about his experience using data to empower PayPal's employees? You know, as I love everything that he's talked about by way of the employee engagement piece. And again, I think because it's really rooted in kind of my principle around you can't promote what, what you don't promote and support within. And so for, for me, I would say, you know, as you're thinking about, you know, you mentioned how you know, consumers, your, your associates want to be a part, to be celebrated and a part of a community, there could be something really interesting uh, by way of, you know, just some of the things that we're doing at the organization um, and some of the content and how we then serve that up to some of the employees uh, just by way of celebrating and recognizing them. That could be really interesting. It's a great question. I know we, we're short on time, but I'd love to be able to kind of think about that a little bit more. Uh, but I do think that there's something really powerful knowing kind of who our, our um, employee base is. And I'm certain, certain that there's a high usage of PayPal <laughs> across, across our universe, for sure, um, myself included. So I think that there could be a really interesting kind of um, partnership. No, thank you, Kimberly. I absolutely look forward to kind of maybe continuing the discussion and, you know, uh-huh, maybe even uh-huh. with your technology counterpart. One thing that I'll, I'll share with you that may be helpful for BET is, you know, we learned from the pandemic that we're not going to be able to service our customers if we don't service our employees. Yeah. And our employees clearly needed to feel safe. Yep. They needed to have the appropriate wellness programs and structure around them so that they could balance their time. And they needed to feel financially secure. So we took a variety of steps in the kind of employee wellness, employee equity to ensure that our employees did feel safe and secure financially so that they could really turn their energies to managing their home life, but also to being able to complete their their work and ultimately service our customers. Awesome. No, I love that. Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. Well, this has been a great opportunity for some cross-pollination. So thank you, Kimberly. And thank you, Dan. Really appreciate you being here today. Always a pleasure and learned so much. And Dan, you're doing some amazing things at PayPal and really, really learned a lot. So again, it was a great, great, great conversation. So thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate you facilitating this. And Kimberly was uh, a pleasure and an honor to be on a virtual stage with you. 